This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry, bringing to you the Short Talk Bulletin, published by the Masonic Service Association of North America every month since 1923. This, the Short Talk Bulletin podcast, is produced in cooperation with the MSA and is made possible with the generous support of a grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota. Volume 53, Number 12, from December of 1975. The Holy Saints John. Written by the Reverend Brother Oscar Allen Gwynn, Jr. I've often wondered why Masonic lodges are dedicated to the Holy Saints John, Saint John the Baptist and Saint John the Evangelist. I could understand it if all of our members were Christians. But that's not true. One evening in Lodge Alamin, number 1412, in Bombay, India, I realized that I was the only Christian present. We have men of many faiths, many denominations, and the followers of many creeds. This can be a weakness, but masonry has made it a strength. Many have written on one or both of the Saints John, including our own past Grand Master, Dr. Thomas S. Roy. I do not want to review their scholarly work, but I quote one paragraph from a paper written in 1940 by Carl H. Claudy. Quote, Whatever the reasons, Freemasons of today come from the Lodge of the Holy Saints John of Jerusalem, meaning that we belong to a lodge dedicated to those saints whose practices and precepts, teachings and examples are those all Freemasons should try to follow. End of quote. What are these precepts and examples? There's no doubt what they mean to me as a Christian clergyman, but what do they mean to me as a Mason? Let me share with you what has become part of my Masonic life. Let's look at them separately. St. John the Baptist St. John the Baptist was a descendant of priests on both sides of his family. His father, Zacharias, was on duty in the temple when John's birth was foretold, and his mother, Elizabeth, was of the daughters of Aaron. We have a story of his birth being predicted by an angel in Luke chapter 1. He was born six months before Jesus, who was his cousin. He was ordained a Nazarite from birth, that is, he was one set apart for God, usually for a period of time. But John was designated one for life. Nazarites could use no alcoholic beverages, could never cut their hair, nor approach a dead body of anything, not even of a close relative. John lived near the Dead Sea for part of his life. Gene Steinman, a Roman Catholic scholar, in his book, St. John the Baptist and his desert tradition, associates him with the Essene sect. This is of great interest today for scholars, because the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls was made in an ancient monastery of the Essenes on the shores of the Dead Sea. Certainly, many of their ideas can be traced in John's thought. John the Baptist was beheaded by Herod on a request made by his wife, Herodias, through her daughter, who had danced for the king and his noblemen while they were highly intoxicated. The king had promised his niece anything, and she made this shocking request. 
Herodias was angry with John the Baptist for his condemnation of the king's marriage to her, who had been his brother's wife. His death occurred about 29 A.D. This cousin of Jesus has represented two main characteristics for me, and I think they have a message for us as Masons. One is asceticism. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 4 says that, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And the same John had the raiment of camel's hair, and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. This is a perfect picture of hundreds of monks who lived in the wild places of the Middle East and North Africa. There have been countless such persons in Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. In fact, you can find them in any religion, in any place, and in any century. These persons withdrew from society and lived alone, or in monasteries with others of like mind. They see the evils rampant in the world, and use their lives as sermons of rejection of the world. They try to find God, a new outlook on life, or their own meaning. They spend hours in meditation and prayer. There is nothing wrong in withdrawing from the rushing world and trying to get our lives and our world into a new perspective. Without these moments, or hours, we gradually run down and collapse. Some of the great increase in mental illness can be attributed to this need. In a true but limited sense, this is what we do when we enter our lodge rooms. Few of us will ever go into the wilderness to live and meditate. But we do withdraw from the world for a short time into a lodge. We place a tiler at the door to see that we are not disturbed. We know the fellowship of brother masons. We transact business and make plans. But when the ritual for the degrees begins, we are to be in meditation on the meaning of our life in this world, on death and on life after death. This is the reason we want the ritual done well, and conversations to cease. One cannot really concentrate when concern is felt for the ritualist who may be forgetting his lines, nor when men are chattering on the sidelines. We've seen our degrees hundreds of times, but seldom do I see one in which I do not get new insights and inspiration. John the Baptist had to give up something to go into the wilderness, and so do we when we go into the lodge. We have to sacrifice something to be there. Fellowship with the family, bowling, TV, or sleep. If we do not sacrifice for the lodge, then masonry means little to us. But the reference to John the Baptist from the Gospel of Matthew says something about him. He came out of the wilderness to talk to the people by the lakeside, on the roads, and in the towns. He shared with them the insights he had gained in his meditation. This has a message for us as Masons. What we've learned in the Lodge about life, death, and immortality we should share with others. No, we cannot divulge the ritual, the secrets, or the exact context of the teachings but we must share the basic lessons learned, or they become weak and die in us. 
This sharing can be done by words, deeds, or lifestyle. A mason is a different man. If he's not, then he has failed to understand masonry. Often, in speaking to Masonic families, I've mentioned this, and some wives have expressed doubt. My only answer has been that they have no idea what he might have been if he had not been a Mason. I have a newspaper clipping of a speech given by a senator in a national legislature of another nation. He knew nothing of Masonry, but proceeded to condemn it severely, and in one place accused us of meeting in the nude. Many of my Masonic friends laughed at his ignorance. But the pathetic point for me was that I knew that the president of that Senate was a Mason. I'm sure that the senator did not know this, but why didn't he? Having lived in Asia, I know the reluctance to publicize Masonry, but I feel others should know something about the fraternity by looking at our lives. If they see something different, then they will want to know what it is. And who knows, it might be the opening for a new brother. Secondly, John the Baptist represents for me humility. John preached, There comes one mightier than I after me, the laces of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. And, He must increase, but I must decrease. For the Christian, this is John's testimony to Jesus, and it's one of the cornerstones of our faith. But what does it say to us as Masons? John the Baptist was willing for Jesus to go before and above him. Joseph Fort Newton called this his self-effacing humility. He was glad to proclaim another's superiority. Aren't we? John knew his position and tried to fill it to the best of his ability. Each Mason has a job to do. We need to know what ours is. It's not the same as any other person's place, but it is as vital as his. Some have a task that's more prominent, but leadership carries with it greater problems and headaches. The junior deacon may not be the highest post in the lodge, but have you ever seen a worshipful master open a lodge without him? Every man in the lodge has a talent for something and an interest in some phase of the work. He needs to feel pride in his work and feel important in it, for he is important. My father had a man come to him in church and ask to help. Dad asked if he could speak in public, teach a Sunday school class, sing, or what talents did he have? Nothing Dad mentioned seemed to be right, so Dad asked what he felt he could do. Stand at the door and give out the hymnals. And he did just that, and added to the service. He was important. It takes humility to recognize our limitations, as well as our abilities. This John the Baptist had. He could see another perform things he could never do, and rejoice in it. The lodge cannot exist without the real workers in the quarries. If everyone sat in the east, we would have a lodge out of balance. Recently, I saw in a Masonic kitchen a small plaque which said, We have too many chiefs and not enough Indians.
And yet, if one does rise to be master, it still takes humility to see another master have a greater year than yours. It is hard to praise him for it and really rejoice that masonry is going forward. Our fraternity is much more important than whether your leadership was greater than someone else's or whether one seems to receive more praise than we do. This is hard to accept in any phase of life, but the real Mason knows the humility that is exemplified by John the Baptist. St. John the Evangelist As much as I appreciate John the Baptist, I must admit that my admiration and respect is even greater for John the Evangelist. Part of this could be due to the greater knowledge we have of his life and work. And especially for me, the meaning of John the Evangelist comes from his gospel, which I love greatly and have read 63 times. C.C. Hunt, writing for the Grand Lodge of Iowa in 1924, said, One, John the Baptist, prepared the way, or, as they said, laid the foundation of our spiritual temple and the other, John the Evangelist, builded thereon. He was the son of Zebedee and made his living as a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Another brother, James, joined him as a disciple of Jesus. John became a member of the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, often being designated the disciple whom Jesus loved. He is described as gentle, mild-mannered, and quiet but he is known, along with James his brother, as Sons of Thunder. He was a friend of Caiaphas, the high priest, for he was able to get into his courtyard during Jesus' trial. This would indicate some status beyond a fisherman. With Peter, he rushed first to the empty tomb on Easter morning. He went to Rome, and during the persecution under the emperor Domitian, was thrown into a pot of boiling oil. We do not know how he escaped, but he lived to be an old man. Some say he died in Ephesus, but the date is hotly debated by scholars, who place it anywhere from 89 to 120 A.D. What does John the Evangelist teach us as Masons? The answers can be many and varied, but for me there are two major contributions. First, John the Evangelist always is known as the Apostle of Love. In Christian circles, he's called the Beloved Disciple, and his gospel is often known as the Gospel of Love. In chapter 13, verse 35, he quotes Jesus, A new commandment I give you, that ye love one another. And in chapter 15, verse 13, he emphasizes the demand for love in greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. These are only two of many references to love in this one book of the Bible. I have not checked it, but one scholar says that there are 43 places where John uses love in his gospel. The lesson for our second degree deals with love or charity, as it was often called in the 17th century when the King James Version of the Bible was translated. It does not quote John, but Paul, from 1 Corinthians verse 13, summarizes wonderfully what John intended in the word love. 
Whenever one uses love today, he has to be very definite in his meaning. We use it in so many ways. We love God, our family, our friends, books, golf, pizza, America, music, and thousands of other things. Love can mean almost anything, depending on the speaker, time, and place. The Greeks were more precise. They had several words meaning love. Eros is a physical attraction for something in the material realm. It can be sexual desire, which gives us the concept of erotic love. Filio is a love between friends, a respect, admiration, attachment. But agape is a heavenly love, a love that's given but can never be deserved. It signifies someone doing something for another who could never demand it, nor even expect it. It is agape when a person gives his life for a friend. This is the love discussed in the second degree. Listen to that lesson when it's read by the chaplain. It's not there just to fill in a period of silence. What does it say? Even if we speak as no man ever spoke before, if we can enact ritual as no one else in all of history, if we could foretell the future, know all answers to the economic and world problems, if we had all faith, if we gave away everything we had, if we were burned at the stake, as was Demolay, but did not have love, then we would be a zero. This love is actually happy when it can suffer for others, does not react when misunderstood, misquoted, and slandered. It does not go only the second mile, but continues until it wins back the brother. It can never fail, for it is God's love in our lives. It is the ultimate love, and it is the love a Mason is supposed to practice. I know that St. Francis of Assisi was never a Mason, but I covet for our fraternity his life of love. Once, when walking through the woods with a friend, he began a discussion on the joy of love. It was a cold night, and they had been out for many hours. Francis turned to Brother Leo and said, Leo, do you know when we can know the joy of love? When we get to Santa Maria, his monastic home, rain-soaked, cold and hungry, and knock at the door, if our brothers come out and drive us away, even knock us down into the snow, calling us rogues, and we can still love them, then we will know the joy of love. We may not have to face this kind of situation, but if we can still love those complaining, arguing, and irritating brothers in the lodge, then we might know the joy of love that is needed in masonry. But John the Evangelist has another and possibly greater contribution to masonry. Few of us are architects and builders by trade, although our fraternity is based on the practices and tools of operative masons. We call ourselves speculative masons, not building in wood and stone, but in the hearts of men. We are not building another temple of Solomon, but a spiritual temple. 
It is this temple that is discussed in the Gospel of John. The construction of a spiritual temple is the most difficult kind of building. If I even discuss it with you, it can be easily considered religious pride. If I attempt to aid you in building your spiritual life, my suggestions may not work for you. We are all different. The methods and tools which I use may not interest you at all, and I cannot say that mine are the best. We can learn from St. Francis of Assisi, St. Augustine, Albert Schweitzer, Martin Buber, or Toyohiko Kagawa. But this can be done only when we put ourselves in their places and then apply their methods to our life in our own day. This is not easy. We must learn what is best for our building, but we must be constantly developing our spiritual temple. This form of temple building moves us from the physical and materialistic realm, which so governs our lives most of the time. We must go to the inner, unseen, basic principles of our lives and eternity. And again, this is very difficult. We've become so materialistic that we have almost sold our souls for a mess of pottage. Bishop Fulton J. Sheen, the Roman Catholic bishop of TV fame, once said that communism frightens us so much because it shows us what happens when one puts into practice what we really believe. Ludwig Feuerbach, the philosopher from whom Karl Marx got his basic materialism to unite with Hegelian dialectics to form dialectical materialism, the philosophical name for communism, summarized materialism in a few sentences. Man eats before he thinks. And man is what he eats. He did not mean that we are just meat, potatoes, bread, vegetables, etc. We are to a certain degree, but he thought our material environment creates our patterns of thoughts and makes us what we are. Feuerbach is right in some ways. If the food I ate tonight disagreed with me and I had indigestion, I might not be in a good mood. It is true that my home and community environment change my outlook on life. But I am more than what I eat or my environment. I have an eternal soul, and so do you. It is in the realm of the soul, or spirit, that we construct our spiritual temple. It is this unseen factor in life that can enable a Lincoln to rise above a log cabin on the frontier and become one of the great men of all times. It gave Gandhi the basis for life and leadership to become the father of modern India, and it gave Washington the courage and vision to come from Valley Forge with all of its hopelessness and give us a new nation. It is this spiritual temple about which we've been talking. It is the basic foundation of our speculative masonry, which we often forget. We forget when we spend time on forms and ignore the substance. We forget when we make great plans and fail to see the people for whom we plan. We forget when we emphasize the exactness of the ritual 
and lose the spirit behind it. But somehow, when we can withdraw from the world for a short time and in humility find the love of brotherhood and the fellowship with God, we learn to draw designs on the trestle boards of our minds and begin to build the real temple of masonry, that spiritual temple in our hearts. May God help us fulfill our tasks in this difficult time. This is Brother Michael A. Smith, a voice for Freemasonry. And this has been the Short Talk Bulletin Podcast, produced in cooperation with the Masonic Service Association of North America for the purpose of providing a common stock of vetted Masonic information to all of the constituent lodges of all of the member jurisdictions and is made possible through a generous grant from the Grand Lodge AFNAM of Minnesota, who have been engaging and inspiring good men who believe in a supreme being to live according to the Masonic tenets of brotherly love, relief, and truth since 1853.